Well, thanks for joining us today at Genesis. My name's Jerry. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're glad to have you tuning in. If you want to drop us a comment at any point during the sermon, please feel free to do that. Uh, my wife, Casey, and I have been married for about 19 years now. And early on in our marriage, uh, we got into an argument as I was getting ready to leave the house to go to an appointment. And I was running late. And so this was before cell phones, by the way. So I wasn't able to just get in the car and call her and talk hands-free and and hash things out. So I had a decision to make. And I decided the best thing that I could do was to get in my last verbal jab, leave the house, get in the car so I could get to where I was going on time. And that's what I did. And, And I thought, I felt good about it. I thought, I got the last word. Surely I just won the argument. Well, when I got to where I was going, I happened to look in the rearview mirror to check myself out one more time to make sure everything was as it should be. And and this is what I saw. Now you see that, right? This is exactly what my teeth look like. And I thought there's no way my wife would let me leave the house looking like this. And so later that night when I got home, I apologized for whatever it was we were fighting about. And I said, hey, by the way, did you know when I left the house, I had a big chunk of food in my teeth? And she said, oh yeah, I saw it. But I was really mad at you, and, and I, didn't, I didn't want to stop you. And in fact, I hope that other people saw you just to embarrass you. Isn't that terrible? This is my best friend in the whole world. Truth be told, I probably deserved it. And all these years later, we laugh that off all the time. But can we just say, as a general rule, I think we can all agree it's best to speak up on behalf of others in order to save them some embarrassment, especially if they've got food in their teeth. But it's also mandatory that we learn to speak up when we see other people being wronged or mistreated or if their life is is in in jeopardy. And today we're, we're wrapping up our series called Peacemakers by learning the importance of speaking up on behalf of others. Now this idea of being a peacemaker comes from a specific teaching of Jesus that is found for us in, in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 that says, where Jesus says these words, blessed are the peacemakers, they will be called children of God. And it's no secret that we live in a world right now where there is so much noise and chaos, there is political division, there's racial tension, and there's societal uncertainty. And this is why Jesus calls and commands his disciples, his followers, to be peacemakers. And and for the last couple of weeks, we've defined a peacemaker as someone who makes and brings God's idea of peace with them wherever they go and whatever they do. And so that's our goal. But we've also been learning that being a peacemaker, it's difficult. It's hard work. It requires us to get our hands dirty. And in two weeks ago, we, we, we said, if the goal is to be a peacemaker, we, we realized that sometimes it's easy for us to want to be a peacekeeper or a troublemaker instead of, of being a peacemaker. And so a peacekeeper is someone that approaches conflict passively. And a troublemaker is someone that approaches conflict forcefully. But Jesus says, no, 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 I'm calling you to be different. I want you to be a peacemaker who is someone that addresses conflict proactively. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, this means we have to have a different mindset. We go to conflict. We go into conflict proactively to bring clarity and reconciliation where there's chaos and there's strife. And today we're going to look at the the life of a young lady named Esther who found herself in a very difficult situation where she had two choices. She could either choose to be a peacekeeper to protect herself or she could become a peacemaker and speak up 
on behalf of others that are being mistreated. So if you have a Bible, I wanna encourage you to follow along today by turning to the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament, about halfway in the Old Testament, just before the book of Psalms. But while you're turning there, it's worth noting that Esther, if you were to read through it, it's a pretty quick read, but honestly, it's not a happy, fun, or even a refreshing book to read because it contains some pretty dark themes and it hits on topics like alcoholism, male dominance, human trafficking, and racism, just to name a few. But there's another thing that's interesting about Esther theologically. It's the only book in the entire Bible where God is never mentioned by name, not even once. And I love what one commentator says about this. They say, Esther is the most true to life biblical example of God's provision because of the fact that he seems to be absent. I mean, we've all experienced that where God just doesn't seem to be at work in our everyday lives. But here's the thing. The more you read and study the book of Esther, what you find is that God is actually at work in the dark places of the world, in the shadows, in order to accomplish his ultimate plans and purposes for individuals and entire people groups. So let's begin with a quick overview of Esther's story. Now, we don't know a lot about Esther other than she was a Jewish orphan who was living as as an exile in the Persian Empire, which by the way, in those days, the Persian Empire spanned from India to Ethiopia, and it accounted for half of the world's population. That's crazy. It's a huge empire. And Esther's story takes place in the Persian capital of Susa, which is located in modern day Iran. And the king of the Persians at that time was King Xerxes. And the one thing you need to know about King Xerxes is he liked to party hard, okay? And in the first chapter of Esther, it begins with King Xerxes, get this, throwing a huge six-month bash just to celebrate his personal awesomeness, right? Like, sounds like a really good guy, right? Well, as parties sometimes go, there was an overindulgence in alcohol by the king and and his buddies. And the king did something that I really think wasn't very wise. He demanded that his wife, Queen Vashti, who was known for being gorgeous, he demanded that she come and parade around the room for all of his guy friends wearing nothing more than her crown and her birthday suit. Now, as a side note, to all the men and the women out there. I don't care what kind of party you're throwing. That's just never a good idea. And to her credit, Queen Vashti refused to give in to the drunken request of her husband, which could have cost her her life. But instead, King Xerxes called a staff meeting and all the the men on his staff said, you know what, you should banish her from from being the queen. And let's just have a mandatory beauty contest So you can find a younger king who's even more beautiful, who will do whatever you tell her to do. And so that's what happened. So from India to Ethiopia, young women were hand-selected to be a part of this beauty contest to see who could be the next queen. And that sounds really exciting, but here's the thing. This is the equivalent to modern day human trafficking because it's believed that a lot of these girls would have been between 12 and 14 years old And the king was in his 40s. So this is a really troubling, very dark story. And this is where Esther enters into the story. In in Esther chapter two, we learn that she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai, who by the way, Mordecai turns out to be a really good dude because not only is he raising his orphan cousin, but later in the story we learn, he unveils a plot against 
an assassination plot against the king of Persia, King Xerxes. And that kind of factors into the story a little bit later. But here's what we learn about Esther in chapter two, verse seven. It says this, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah who, had, who he had brought up because she had, either, she had neither father nor mother. This young woman who was also known as Esther, now listen to this, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. And so right away, we learn Esther's story is really, really tragic, but we also learn she was a beautiful young woman. But unfortunately for her, that meant she was handpicked and forced to compete in this, in this kingdom-wide beauty pageant. And maybe you're thinking, well, this is great. She's an orphan. She gets to become queen. That sounds exciting. But we've already seen that the king doesn't treat women very well. And the reality is being queen basically meant that you were at the king's disposal for his own personal pleasure. Well, here's a spoiler alert for you. In case you didn't know, Esther ends up winning the beauty pageant. She does become queen. But she and her cousin Mordecai make a very wise decision. They decide that it's best that they conceal their Jewish nationality as a secret to protect themselves from persecution because believe it or not, as crazy as this sounds, in Esther's day, there were actually people who thought it was okay to mistreat other people because of the color of their skin or because they were born in a different country. Now, can you imagine living in a world where people mistreated other people because of the color of their skin, something that benign or, or the nationality, the place where they were born. Well, whether we're willing to admit it or not, racism is still a huge issue in our world and specifically in the United States. And, and I'm willing to admit as a middle-aged white man that I feel relatively ignorant on this subject. And here's the thing, I don't feel ignorant because I don't think it's a real thing because clearly racism is a major issue. But I've never personally had to experience the pain and the humiliation and the dehumanization that comes with racism. But I know people that have, and it's, it's awful, it's terrible. And it would be easy for any of us to say, well, well, I'm not racist, I don't view people that way. But here's the thing, it's, it's not enough to just say, well, I, I'm not contributing to it, so it's not a problem, because here's the reality, it is an issue. And, and what we need to do is not just accept people that are different than us, but we have to learn to pursue them relationally and, and learn to form relationships with them, with people that look differently than us, that talk differently or think differently or even live differently than us. And when we do, we'll start to think differently. We'll say things like, well, I might not have caused this problem, but I certainly want to know how to help fix this problem because that's how a peacemaker thinks. That's how a peacemaker talks. And, and that was the issue for Mordecai and Esther. They felt the pressure of racism and so they wanted to conceal their nationality to protect themselves. And this is where Esther's story starts to get really interesting because shortly after she becomes queen, queen one of the king's official was an evil man named Haman. And he came up with this plan to destroy anyone in the Persian empire that was Jewish or had genetic ties to the nation of Israel. In other words, Haman was a troublemaker. He liked to rush into conflict for the sake of having conflict. And sadly, it didn't take long for Haman to convince King Xerxes to issue a decree to wipe out all the Jews in his kingdom. But, but here's the thing, Xerxes didn't know that his new queen, uh, Esther, and 
her cousin Mordecai were Jewish. He didn't know or understand what he was doing, but regardless, Haman's evil plot had been put into motion, leaving Jews throughout the Persian empire fearing for their lives. And at first you might think, well, isn't this where Esther should step up and, and speak out? Well, yeah, but there's a couple of things you need to know about passing laws in the, in the Persian empire. Once a king made a command or a decree, it was irreversible. It couldn't be changed, which seems strange to me. But the second thing is this. No one, not even the queen, could approach the king unannounced. And if you showed up uninvited to get his attention, he could kill you on the spot if he wanted to. And to make matters worse, if you read through Esther's story, we learn when this decree goes out to destroy the Jews, she hasn't talked to the king in over 30 days. So it's been a long time and she's not even sure when she's going to see him again. So I want you to imagine what it would be like to be Esther. Imagine the pressure that she must have felt. Because if she tries to speak up, she could be killed. Or if she doesn't do anything and she keeps her nationality a secret, she might survive, but her cousin Mordecai and all of her people are sure to be wiped out. She was in a seemingly impossible situation. And if you continue to read through the story, what you find is that she's tempted to do something that we all are. She was tempted to be passive to try to save her own life. But thankfully, Mordecai challenged her to rise to the occasion. Look at what Mordecai says to Esther in chapter four, verses 13 and 14. He says this, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And like all of us, Esther was tempted to be passive to protect herself as a peacekeeper. And who could blame her, right? I mean, that's a lot of pressure for anybody, much less a young orphan girl who is living in a male-dominated society. But thankfully, her cousin Mordecai realized what was at stake for her and what was at stake for her people, and he boldly challenged her to be a peacemaker by approaching a very serious conflict proactively. And it paid off, because if you keep reading, here's what she does. She, she responds to Mordecai's challenge by asking all of her Jewish friends to fast for her for three days. Now, if you're not familiar with this idea of fasting, it just simply means giving up food for a period of time, and then you, you replace the time that you would eat by praying to God and asking for things like help and wisdom and courage and guidance. And remember we said Esther, the book of Esther is unique because God's never mentioned by name. However, this idea of fasting carries with it a prayerful dependence on God to overcome an impossible situation with his help. And that's exactly what happens. Because after fasting for three days, with God's help, Esther musters up the courage to approach King Xerxes and she's able to explain Haman's evil plot. And guess what? The king puts Haman to death and he allows Esther and Mordecai to write a new law that would allow the Jews to protect themselves if they were attacked. And to this day, Jewish people every year celebrate a holiday called Purim to commemorate uh, the way that God saved the Jews through the bravery of Esther and Mordecai. But here's my personal favorite part of this story. 
every year during Purim, you can buy triangle-shaped cookies that look just like this. They're called hamantaschen. And get this, they represent the ears of Haman and they serve as a reminder that Haman is the one that was killed instead of the Jewish people. Doesn't that sound yummy? Doesn't that make you just want one of those cookies? Now we all enjoy a happy ending to a terrible story like this, but here's the truth. Esther's story is really, really tragic. And in light of the turmoil that our country and our world is facing, specifically when it comes to racial tension, if there's anything that we can learn from Esther's story, it's this. Peacemakers speak up for others, even when it might cost them everything. I want to say that again. Peacemakers speak up for others, even when it might cost them everything. Think about how easy it would have been for Esther to say, look, just please send somebody else. I'm just one person. I'm too young. No one is going to listen to me. And it's tempting for any or all of us to respond that way to a really difficult conflict. But as followers of Jesus, it's our responsibility to acknowledge when we see other people being mistreated and to leverage our influence and our voice to speak up on their behalf. And throughout scripture, this is really interesting, we see God call his people to stand up for three types of people, widows, orphans, and immigrants. So I want you to think of it like this, peacemakers stand up for those who don't have a voice. Now, I I think that pastor and author Randy Alcorn sums up this idea best. Listen to what he says. He says, I believe that for the personal, I'm sorry, for the gospel message to be best proclaimed and most credible, it should be voiced by those who build bridges of love and speak up for the rights of the unborn, for children and women and people of every race. It's the atonement of Jesus that saves. But as Jesus said, It's the love of his people for each other that testifies that this life-changing gospel is in fact true. And so for those of us that follow Jesus, it's our responsibility to acknowledge and to confront and speak out on issues like racism when we see them. And the same is true when it comes to valuing the lives of unborn babies, as well as fighting for and protecting women and children from the evils of human trafficking. And here's the thing, when we get this right, think about this. Our conservative friends will think we're way too liberal. And our liberal friends will think we're way too conservative. But here's the good news. You'll have friends on both sides of the aisle and everybody wants to be friends with someone who loves other people well. And and here's what's true. The teachings of Jesus, they really don't fit neatly into any political party. Jesus didn't come to earth as a donkey or an elephant. He came as the lamb of God. And he didn't come to exercise his authority over the world, but he came to take away the sins of the world. And one of the things I love most and and appreciate most about Jesus as one of his followers is that he addresses issues like racism and sexism head on. And we see this several places throughout the gospels, but one of my favorite is in John chapter four. Jesus takes his disciples into enemy territory, into Samaria. Now you gotta know this, if you don't already, Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was major racial hatred between the two groups. And so this would have been a very uncomfortable trip for his disciples. But while Jesus is in Samaria, he does something fascinating. He reveals his identity as the Messiah for the very first time to a woman 
who was an outcast, who was also a Samaritan. And his disciples, this would have blown their minds. But here's the result. This woman puts her faith in Jesus as the Messiah. She goes back to the Samaritan village where she's an outcast. She tells people about Jesus and they immediately rush to him. And a a bunch of Samaritans put their trust in Jesus as the Messiah and savior of the world long before many of his Jewish brothers and sisters would ever do that. That would have rocked his disciples' world. The Samaritans were their sworn enemies, and yet Jesus approached them with the same love and acceptance as he would with any of his fellow Jews. And his love and his grace for others went beyond the color of their skin or their national heritage. And we find Jesus, time and time again, we find Jesus leveraging his voice and his position to to help others in a variety of ways. In John chapter 8, There's a story maybe you're familiar with. There was a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And there's a group of men standing around her, getting ready to throw rocks to kill her. And you know what Jesus does? He leverages his voice to save her life. Now, had she sinned? Yes. Was she wrong? Of course she was wrong. But in that moment, Jesus leveraged his voice in order to save her life. And in doing so, he extended grace to her to forgive her sins. And it's the same grace that he extends to us to wash away our sins. So are you starting to get the message? Time and time again, we find Jesus showing us how to live as peacemakers by speaking up for others who don't have a voice of their own. Genesis Church, this is what Jesus is calling us to. We have to do this, especially for those in our society that are being marginalized or categorized unfairly. We can do this and we have to do this but we can't do it on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, reshaping the way that we think. And we need an active relationship with him on a daily basis to carry this message with us everywhere we go. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says on this issue in Galatians chapter three. He says this, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. And then listen to what he says. There is neither Jew or Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul's point here is, look, we might all be different, but because of our faith in Jesus, we're the same. We're united as one. And and here's the reality. The things that separate us as humans They are small. They are minuscule. They are so tiny when we compare them to the unity that that can be found in Jesus. So let's be followers of Jesus that live out his example of being peacemakers. We have to start by putting our differences aside and helping the world around us to do the same. And it's going to require us to leverage our influence and to raise our voices when we see other people being mistreated. But this is the message. This is the mission that Jesus has for us. His message of the gospel was to take it to all nations, everybody, everywhere, whether they are like us or not. Now, I want to say one more thing about being a peacemaker, and this is really, really important. You can't be a peacemaker yourself until you are at peace with your heavenly father. And we say this a lot here at Genesis, but that begins by having a relationship with Jesus. It begins by admitting that you're a sinner. You have done things wrong to damage your relationship with God. We all have. Scripture tells us that. 
But once you admit you're a sinner, you can reach out to Jesus and say, I trust that you've paid for my sin when you died on the cross. And when you do that, a, a couple of amazing things happen. One, all of your sins are forgiven. You are filled with the Holy Spirit of God and then you're officially at peace with God. And now you can take up this mantle of being a follower of Jesus and a peacemaker in the world around us. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, why not let today be that day? Leave us a comment in the comment section. Reach out to us. We will walk this journey with you, but we want to invite you to make that decision today. And for those of us that are following Jesus, this is what we're called to. It's not easy. It won't always be fun, but it will be worth it because as peacemakers, we're called to bring his peace with us wherever we go. And we do that by raising our voices for people that don't have them. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the power of Esther's story. I'm thankful that Mordecai challenged her to, to lift up her voice. And I'm, I'm thankful for the courage that we see her model. Would you help us to follow her example? Would you help us to follow Jesus's example of, of using our voice, of leveraging our influence for people that are being mistreated? Would you open our eyes to our everyday world with our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our classmates, would you help us to see areas where we can say, hey, that's not right. And we would be willing to stand in the gap for people that are being abused, that are being judged. Would you help us to be the peacemakers that you've called us to be, Jesus? I pray for any of our friends that don't know you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to them right now. I pray that you would help them to see that they have sinned, but you are there to forgive their sin. And you want to fill them with the gift of your Holy Spirit to forgive them and to set them on this mission of being peacemakers. Jesus, would you help us to be a church family that is committed to bringing your peace with us everywhere we go. It's in your powerful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.